For tonight's episode, we are diving into the deep woods for some scary encounters sent in from viewers like you. Please consider subscribing if you are new and turn on channel notifications if you like scary stories. I appreciate your support. I'll introduce you to Magic Mind a bit later in the episode. It's this awesome drink that makes you more productive. Now let's dive into some scary deep woods horror stories. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Man, I'm exhausted, Kip whined as his boots thudded heavily against the dirt path. His face remained hidden, but the way his back was hunched, shoulders slumping, revealed the weight of fatigue pressing upon him. I want to crawl under a blanket and sleep for a whole week, maybe two. You need to shower first, I retorted, my gaze fixed straight ahead. You stink. In all honesty, so did I. Hours of hiking had left us both sweat-soaked and weary. Even the short journey back to the parking lot felt daunting, especially as the darkness descended upon us. Tonight was exceptionally dark. Not a single sliver of moonlight pierced the sky, enveloping our surroundings in an impenetrable shroud of blackness. My flashlight, the only source of illumination, cast eerie shadows and revealed little more than Kip's silhouette and the trail ahead. It did nothing to dispel the menacing darkness that lurked just beyond its reach. But I knew this trail well, having walked it for years. It was a safe area, or so I believed. The hike back, even in the pitch-black night, should have been a tranquil experience. The sounds of crickets chirping, the distant hoots of an owl, and the gentle breeze rustling through my hair almost lulled me into a dreamy, half-conscious state. Do you hear that? Kip whispered suddenly, his footsteps halting abruptly. Hmm? What? I inquired, puzzled. Listen, he urged, his entire body tensing. I frowned and came to a stop behind him. I don't hear anything. Kip hushed me, his posture rigid and vigilant. I swung my flashlight around, its pale beam revealing only the underbrush and tree trunks. Nothing seemed amiss, but as I tuned into the night's silence, I noticed something unsettling. The crickets had fallen silent. The usual symphony of night sounds was absent, and all that remained was the soft rustling of our clothes and the rhythmic panting of our breaths. Kip, what exactly do you hear? A piercing scream pierced the stillness, followed by a high-pitched female voice shouting, Help me! I froze in my tracks, my eyes widening in alarm. My feet felt as though they were glued to the ground while Kip wasted no time and sprinted forward, his terse command of, Come on! echoing back to me. Kip, wait! I protested, turning around and swinging my flashlight just in time to catch his silhouette vanishing into the forest. My heart raced and my hands trembled. 
This was supposed to be a safe trail. I had never encountered anything more menacing than a rabbit here. Why had Kip rushed off like that, leaving me in the dark without a flashlight? Why hadn't he waited for me? I shook my head vehemently, attempting to clear my thoughts. I had to follow him. It was likely a minor incident. Maybe the girl had fallen and needed medical assistance. I reassured myself that there must be a first aid kit in my backpack. Summoning my courage, I pressed forward in the direction Kip had gone. Stepping off the trail and between the trees, the feeble light revealed only the swaying grass left in his wake. Even the sound of his hurried footsteps had faded into the night. Alone in the darkness, I took a deep breath and began running, calling out, Help me! Again, I concentrated on the sound of her voice, using it as a beacon. As long as she was calling out, I assumed she was safe. If there had been a bear or any real danger, she would have ceased her cries long ago. The trail had always been safe, devoid of bears for miles. Kip! I yelled into the night. There was no response. He had a substantial lead on me, and I was certain he would reach her first. Perhaps he was already by her side, comforting her and waiting for me to call 911. He had mentioned that his phone had no signal in this area. Help me! The voice grew louder as I drew nearer. The trees began to thin, and I slowed to a brisk walk, panting heavily in the night air, clutching my flashlight so tightly that my knuckles turned white. Something felt wrong. The voice didn't sound too distant, and I would reach her soon. Kip, with his head start, should already be with her. Yet, as I continued walking, I realized something was amiss. Why hadn't she stopped shouting, and why did her cries all sound identical? The same desperate pitch, the elongated E and me every time. Something about it felt unnatural. Help me. Reaching a clearing, I suddenly felt exposed and vulnerable. I dimmed my flashlight, trying to move silently. I couldn't shake the sensation that someone was watching me, and my breathing sounded deafening in the eerie stillness of the forest. Help me! An icy shiver crawled up my spine as I realized the horrifying truth. It was the same voice, repeating the same words. Same pitch, same tone, like a broken record playing on an endless loop. There had never been a person in distress. Kip and I had been lured into a trap. In a panic, I turned off my flashlight and crouched behind a tree, trembling uncontrollably. I reached for my phone, holding it close to my chest to conceal its light, and dialed Kip's number. He answered on the second ring. Where are you? He bellowed. I lowered my voice to a whisper as I explained, Kip, you need to listen. We have to run. It's a trap, I swear. There's no one in trouble. It's just some kind of recording or something. I don't know who's out there, but I don't want to find out. A long silence followed. Did he doubt me? I continued, desperation in my voice. Please, just come find me first. I'm hiding by a tree. I'll turn on my flashlight so you can see me. Where are you? He demanded once more. I don't have the exact coordinates, but if you just... I began to say. Where are you? My breath caught in my throat. My ears rang, and dizziness washed over me. Right, Kip's phone didn't have service here. We shouldn't be talking. My phone slipped from my hand, hitting the ground with a thud. Kip's voice repeated, quieter but still audible. The same words, the same pitch, the same tone. Just like a recording stuck on an endless loop. It started out as just a routine night on the job as a park ranger, or more specifically in my case, just a routine night on the job as a park ranger in Arizona. 
It was a job I loved, as I'd been on the team for years, and I had no reason to want to change that. I adored the scenery, the desert canyons, the saguaro cactus that dotted the horizon, and everything that came with it. I even loved the job at night. In fact, I especially loved working at night. That's my favorite time to patrol the park. There had just been a recent series of dust storms in the area, so the park had been closed for several days, and tomorrow was the first full day back. Our job today had been to prepare for the reopening, and we had been tasked with double-checking the park to make sure nothing was amiss or out of place. And, lucky for me, I had gotten the chance to patrol the area as night was settling in. I had just rounded a corner and was straightening my jeep out on the road when I noticed something looked slightly out of place. I'd been on this stretch of road literally a thousand times by now, but thanks to the huge dust storm, the nearby canyon wall had been swept clear of dust, and now you could see that a section of rock wall had been removed and replaced with something else. So I immediately pulled over, turned on my flashlight, and hopped out of the jeep to investigate. It didn't take long to see that this wasn't some random gap in the canyon wall, but a man-made opening that had been boarded up many years ago. The wood was badly damaged and weathered by the elements, and it had only been the years of sand and debris that kept it hidden this long. I felt a ripple of excitement as I held my flashlight up to it. From all the years I've been on the job and lived out here, I was pretty sure this was the opening to a mine. Not only had I seen plenty in my time out west, but part of the land that was now the park had belonged to a mining company. There had been rumors there was a mine under the land, but nothing had ever been found or confirmed until now, and I made it official by using my Jeep radio to let my colleagues know my location and what I'd found. The ranger base radioed back. They had received my message and were sending some of my colleagues to help investigate with me, and I should wait until they arrived. I confirmed I understood my instructions, and then I returned to my jeep and waited. My fellow rangers arrived relatively quickly, and once they had their flashlights in hand, we all carefully approached the badly boarded up entrance. There were now four of us, Holly, Christian, Fletcher, and myself. The wooden beams were barely held in place by rusty nails and were pulled off easily. Once they were all laying cast aside on the rocky ground, we shined our flashlights into the now exposed entrance. Now, there was no doubt it was the opening to a mine. The wooden beams lining the walls and the rusty track lining the floor confirmed this had been used in mining. Since I had been the one to find this place, my fellow rangers let me do the honors, and I led the way into the dusty and arid tunnel. The tunnel went on for about a mile until it passed by an open section of rock wall on our left. It was jagged and rough, but we could just see that it led straight to a mine shaft many stories below us. But when we looked straight down at the mine shaft with our flashlights in hand, I almost recoiled in shock. The mine shaft floor was almost completely covered with snakes. Only the slightest bit of mine floor was visible for us to see. And even from this distance, it was obvious they were diamondback rattlesnakes. We'd all seen many of them while working here, but seeing so many of them in one place didn't feel real. I could practically feel their movements, even though I was far above them. The fact that so many of them got here in one place was mind-boggling. It all looked like something out of a documentary, and if you stared at it long enough, there was the brief illusion that the floor was moving. Wow, Holly muttered as she looked at the snakes just below us. Wow, is right, Christian agreed. Definitely something to document, 
We did just that before we carried on. Once we left the snakes behind, the four of us walked in relative silence for about five minutes until we came to a turn in the tunnel, and we could feel it descending further into the earth. The air was even cooler here, and we kept at a steady pace until we arrived at a fork in the tunnel. All right, what do we do now? Fletcher asked. Shall we split up? Christian suggested. Works for me, I said. I'll take the left. I'll go with you, Fletcher volunteered. Cool, then we'll head this way, Holly nodded. Once we radioed the base what we were doing and got confirmation they understood, we proceeded. When Fletcher and I headed down the left tunnel, Holly and Christian disappeared behind the dense rock wall separating the tunnels, and that was it. Fletcher and I walked at the same pace as the left tunnel veered far off from the path we'd been going down. After twisting sharply to the left, it evened out until we found ourselves in a narrow cavern that led to a dead end. With my flashlight in hand, I took a closer look at where we were. The ceiling was dotted with stalactites, and the ground was covered in sand and a few rocks. Fletcher was right behind me as we quietly checked everything out. I was just about to say we should go back when I saw right in the corner there was a section of wall that was a bit smoother than the rest. When I took a closer look it appeared like a bit of the floor was boarded up. Come over here, I called to Fletcher. He immediately walked over to where I was looking and saw I'd found something. After we both took a moment to look at it, we were able to see it was a trap door and there was a rusted handle in the middle of the wooden frame. Shall we give it a try? Fletcher asked. I nodded and we both took hold and tugged. It was heavy and took a ton of strength, but after a moment it jolted open with a loud crack. Once we eased it open, we shined our flashlights down into the opening. It was a simple climb down a bit of cavern steps, and it opened to another path. But why had it been closed off? People had probably fallen back when this was an operating mine. After we briefly reported what we'd found back to base, we slowly descended the steps. Once we were both back on flat terrain, we took the space in. You couldn't see it from above, but this part of the mine connected to a winding path that led further down into what I assumed was the pit. This time, Fletcher went first and I followed him. We had walked for almost a mile down the winding path when Fletcher moved a stationary minecart out of the way and it inadvertently crashed into the rock wall beside us with a loud bang that seemed to echo in the space. Sorry, he said to me, no worries. But in the beam from my flashlight I could see the minecart hitting the rock wall had disturbed the earth around it, and an opening had appeared in the ground. And moments later, I could see shapes coming out of it. I immediately recognized them as Arizona bark scorpions, and they were crawling out of the wall at a fast pace and before too long they had completely covered the space separating Fletcher and myself, especially because we had both been in the job long enough to know you didn't want to get stung by one, much less the dozens crawling out, so we immediately backed up and away from each other. I guess I'll go this way, and you keep going that way, I said, as I pointed to the other way the tunnel went. Sounds good. I'll catch up with you. And with that, I was back on my own. I followed the path in the other direction and before too long, I came to another end, but this time it was marked by a huge pile of rocks. When I got close I could feel the breeze coming from somewhere, so I knew this led outside. So I slowly started removing rocks, and before too long, there was a narrow path for me to climb through to reach the other side, and once I put my flashlight back on my belt, I started to climb through the rocks and feel my way through. Moments later, 
I was in the pleasant nighttime air again. The breeze felt amazing after being in the dusty mine for so long, and I took a moment to get oriented. I was far away from the park now, and I was in the middle of a rocky canyon overlooking the desert terrain a level below. It was an incredible sight. All those saguaro cacti dotting the night landscape, while other brush lined the desert floor. But then, far on the horizon, I saw something coming this way, something kicking up a lot of dusk. It was a car, and its headlights were blazing bright against the darkness that had settled over everything. The sight filled me with dread, so I immediately ducked behind a rock wall and watched. A lone car driving out in the desert at night is never a good sign, especially when the road doesn't exactly lead this way. It didn't happen often, but occasionally rangers have found things out here over the years. Unnerving things. Things that suggested something bad happened without coming right out and saying it. It's no surprise because there's nowhere to run in the desert. There aren't many trees to climb up in, no forest you can camouflage yourself with, and no abandoned cabin you can run into. Unless you get lucky and there's an abandoned mine around, you are well and truly at the mercy of whatever is out there. And most of the time that means you're at the mercy of nature, or even worse, people who didn't know the meaning of the word merciful. Out of instinct, I checked my belt, and my stomach lurched when I realized my walkie-talkie was gone. Probably got stuck in the rocks I climbed through, but I still had my heavy flashlight. That was more important, because it could come in handy if push came to shove. Then I quickly tried to crawl my way back to the mine to get help, but then cold fear hit me as I realized there had been a cave-in or something, as heavier rocks had replaced the much lighter ones I had moved. I quietly struggled for a moment until it was obvious they weren't budging so I had no choice but to return to my hiding spot and think of what else to do. So I took a deep breath and watched the vehicle, which was a truck, bounce over countless dips in the ground. There were no paved streets out here, so the truck was constantly kicking up dust and swerving roughly. I had no idea what was going on, but I had a feeling, and it gave me a chill. Naivety is a luxury most people can't afford anymore. The truck's headlights were almost unnaturally bright, gleaming harshly against the desert sand. If anyone else accidentally stumbled onto the scene, I doubt they'd wonder about what was happening out here at night, either. As I could tell, there were two most likely options. Money changing hands or something worse. It was just a question of which one it would be. In fact, it was entirely possible it could be both. As the truck got closer, I could see it was gray, and although the windows weren't tinted, I couldn't see who was inside. Moments later, the truck slammed to a halt in an open patch of land that was just close enough for me to see what was happening. Then, all was eerily quiet for a moment until all four doors opened at the same time and one man got out of each door. The truck's front was facing me, so I had a direct view as the two guys on the driver's side pulled a fifth guy out of the back seat and dragged him roughly along with them. Not a good sign especially because even at this distance I could see they were armed in addition to carrying flashlights to see where they were walking, and you could tell the guy was scared. No surprise there. Since they had no concern about him seeing their faces, that meant they weren't worried about what came after this little rendezvous. But even if they'd done that, he probably knew who they were. While I could practically smell the fear coming off him, he didn't look surprised or shocked. In fact, I felt a shock of recognition when I realized the guy looked familiar. He was a local businessman who disappeared about a week ago. 
The story was some people had shown up unannounced at his house and without saying a word, kicked the door in, dragged him out, and stuffed him in the back of a car in the middle of the night. And rumor was the people responsible were a local gang famous for violence intended to shock and horrify. But since this guy was well known and had some power in town, rumor was they decided to make an example of him in another way by making him disappear. By now, they had dragged the guy, who I remembered was Mason Winters, towards a spot in the middle of the area. He was dressed in a suit that was clearly expensive, but had also seen better days. But then I realized that three of the four guys were dragging Winters, while the fourth was retrieving something from the back of the truck. I briefly wondered how many times they'd done this. From their demeanor, they seemed beyond nonchalant about it all, like it was the most routine thing in the world to them, which very well could be the case. Then the guy found what he wanted from the trunk. It was a shovel, which he tossed at the ground by where his associates had shoved Mason Winters and left him. Dig, I could hear him faintly say from where I was hiding. There was no further explanation needed, as Winters picked up the shovel, stood up, and slowly started digging. I could see the first few shovelfuls were hard, but it started to come easier. He shoveled back and forth in what seemed like a never-ending motion. I could practically feel their gaze on him, as each shovelful brought him one step closer to the end, and the air was thick with adrenaline and tension. I was sweating despite the cool night air, and I didn't want to look, but I had no choice. It wasn't long before Winters began to feel the ache in his arms, because he definitely slowed down the longer he dug. The four men didn't say a word the entire time, as they merely leaned against the truck, and one of them lit up a cigarette. When he did, the brief flash of a lighter stood out in the darkness for a moment. The hole was slowly getting bigger and bigger, as was the pile of dirt beside it. Before too long, it'd be the proper dimensions, and then it would all be over. Or it would be unless I did something, which is what I had planned. I had some rocks ready, and when the moment came, I would hurl some as far as I could in the other direction and cause some paranoia and distraction, maybe give Winters the chance to get the upper hand. He didn't strike me as the type to back down from a fight easily. He may have been terrified, and his arms were probably aching with every movement, but he was dignified. Not once did he beg or plead for his life. I also noticed it felt unnaturally quiet. No sign of any animals or any other forms of desert life. I'm not sure if that made the situation better or worse. All right, that's good enough, one of the four armed men suddenly commanded. As Winters stopped digging, I gripped one of the rocks tightly in my hand. It was time. I was aiming to throw it where it would make plenty of noise. Fear shivered down my spine as I got ready to act. But just as I was about to throw, there was a sound from somewhere out there in the desert. Something between a snap and a crack, and the suddenness of it after the deafening silence was disconcerting. What was that? The one who told Winters to stop asked. He was about medium height, and he had an athletic build. No idea. Come with me and look. The driver nodded at him. You two watch him, he said to the other two gunmen while pointing at Winters. The two of them headed in the direction the sound had come from while Winters stood in front of the hole with two pairs of eyes on him. From where they were headed... It looked like the sound had come from behind a small canyon covered in sand. What the hell? I heard the driver ask after about three minutes. Is that? Was all the other guy managed to get out before I heard a deafening roar that was immediately followed by the sound of gunfire and a blood-curdling scream. The other two gunmen watching, Winters immediately jumped and ran to check out what was going on. 
Winters grabbed the shovel again and watched from behind the mound of dirt as the two men ran to where their associates had been, only to be stopped dead in their tracks as the driver sprinted towards them, his clothes and face splattered with red. Run for the truck, he screamed at them. But before he could lead them in that direction, something grabbed him from behind and dragged him out of sight while he thrashed and screamed. The flashlight in his hand lay there motionless on the ground, casting a beam onto the sand. The two remaining gunmen also dropped their flashlights as they tried to honor their instructions and sprinted towards the truck, any thoughts of Winters long since forgotten. They were halfway there when something stepped in their path. I watched in shock as a shape on four legs that seemed to loom out of the darkness launched itself at them with a ferocity I had never seen before. Like anyone, I had heard stories of what creatures may lurk in the desert. I hadn't given it much thought as an adult because there were many more pressing monsters to be afraid of. Who has time to worry about a monster that may or may not exist when you are surrounded by monsters you know exist? Winners audibly gasped at the same time both gunmen yelled out. One tried to aim and fire his gun, but the creature stood on its hind legs and slashed his arm with claws that looked lethally long before he could fire a single shot. He let out a wail of pain as he fell to the ground. The other one tried to keep running to the truck. I could hear his heavy breathing as he panted, but he was no match for the creature. It pounced on him and sunk its teeth into his neck, silencing him instantly. Meanwhile, his associate was still crawling on the ground, trying to get to cover in the truck. In the blink of an eye, whatever that thing was, landed on top of him, and after the gunman briefly cried out, he went quiet. Now it was silent again, and the only source of light out on the desert floor was the discarded flashlights. But that thing was still out there because you could occasionally hear movement coming from the darkness. Winters heard it too, because he stayed hidden behind the massive dirt pile and kept quiet. Good move. An eternity passed before I heard what sounded like footsteps going in the opposite direction. Then it was gone. Winters noticed the same thing, because he peeked out from behind the dirt mound and saw there was no sign of that thing. No doubt he was feeling painfully exposed out there in the middle of the desert more than ever. Then, somehow the feeling in the air returned to normal, and the desert felt more like the desert once again. I couldn't tell you how or why it happened, but something shifted in the air. And now this felt more like the desert I'd spent an incalculable amount of time in. So, after I cleared my throat and tried to shake off the shock of the situation, I stood up and called out, Hey, Winters, over here! He turned to look at me so fast it was impressive. I had no doubt the poor guy was on edge, but I thought that was better than sneaking up on him. Who are you and how do you know who I am? He yelled back to me. I'm a park ranger and I've seen you all over the news. How did you get out here? found a hidden mine shaft and followed it here. He paused while he took this in. How long were you up there? Not long. I got here right before you arrived. Did, he began. Did something come out of nowhere and attack my unwanted associates? Indeed. I thought so, but I wanted to check and make sure I wasn't hallucinating or something. Saying I'm lucky that thing showed up doesn't even come close to describing it. I was going to cause a little diversion if it didn't. My walkie-talkie got lost in the mine, otherwise I would have called for help. I appreciate that. On that note, do you mind lending me a ride? I pointed to the truck that sat there silently. No problem. Come on down and we'll get the hell out of there. He didn't need to say anything more. Now I felt better about turning my flashlight back on as I walked down from where I was to the truck. 
I still felt the adrenaline running through my body, but it was more muted. Plus, it was nothing compared to how Winters must be feeling, so I just put one foot in front of the other and walked towards the truck. While I was far less wary now, I did keep my eye on the truck and paid attention to my peripheral vision as I approached Winters while I walked through the cactus-lined sand. Eventually, Winters was in front of me. He studied my appearance, obviously checking my uniform. After a moment, he held his hand out in front of him, and we shook hands. I could feel how raw they were from digging, but he didn't flinch for a moment. Nice to meet you, I said sincerely. Likewise, shall we get this show on the road? Absolutely. But then I paused. Is it alright if I drive? Winters didn't say anything, but I could feel him thinking over my request. After what seemed like a long time but was probably less than a minute, he chuckled. Sure thing, and smart man. I would have asked the same thing. You may have an idea of who those men are and why they took me, but you don't know specifics and have no reason to trust me or where I might take you. By all means, drive. I'm just happy to get the hell out of here at all. With that, I hopped in the driver's seat while Winters climbed in beside me. I wasn't surprised that the keys were still in the ignition. They had no reason to even consider removing them. As I briefly checked the truck, I could see bits of stuffing coming out of the upholstery in the back seat. But the truck started without any difficulty, and I slowly pulled out of there. As the area faded away in the red glow from the taillights, I watched the dust being kicked up in the truck's rearview mirror. What was left of the four men who came out with Winters laid sprawled out on the ground, completely motionless. After a few minutes, the sight had nearly vanished in the rearview mirror, and we were well on our way towards the road back to town. You want to know exactly what happened? Winters asked after being quiet since we got in the truck. Of course. The reason for my disappearance and the little ride out here was that I wouldn't pay money to some people who claimed I should for my own good. Do you know why? I have an idea. He chuckled. You seem perceptive, so I'm sure you do. It's all very simple. As a businessman, it's all a question of value. Paying money is absolutely useless if they keep raising the price or there's absolutely no guarantee of safety in it. When there are a thousand other people just waiting to take over turf or already in the area also demanding payment, it's a complete waste of money. Especially since I have no family in the area, so it wasn't like these people could use that as leverage against me. I'd learned to live with death a long time ago. It's like an old friend you've been expecting to show up to a party you're having. Sometimes he's early, sometimes he's late, sometimes he's right on schedule when you expect him, but he always makes a call. But like any party guest, most of the time, you can't help but be nervous when he's about to come knocking. There was a lot of sense in that, so the two of us sat in comfortable silence until the vast terrain of the desert was behind us, and we were almost back to town. Right before I reached the road, he turned to me. What exactly did you plan to do if that thing hadn't shown up? Throw some rocks to cause a distraction and some chaos. Interesting, what did you think that would do? At the very least, give you an opportunity to get the upper hand and do something. Did it not cross your mind that might make the situation worse? I briefly glanced at him. No. Why? He sounded genuinely intrigued. I watched you the whole time. You were afraid, but you were defiant. You didn't beg for your life, offer to give them whatever they wanted, or anything remotely like that. You were ready to put up a fight. Winters seemed genuinely surprised by this. 
Then I saw him smile for the first time. You are observant, and you were right. Had you started throwing rocks, I would have immediately swung into action. At the very least, it would have given me a chance. You know what I was thinking of while I was digging? What? How the four of them were small time and would always be small time no matter what happened to me. They were all expendable. Know what's going to happen now? I'll turn up and it'll be a huge news story. I'll go back to my life and people will look at me in stunned disbelief. It'll be the story to end stories. Meanwhile, the four of them won't even be a name somewhere. They'll eventually be dumped in a hole in the ground, just like that one, and they will be replaced like they weren't even there. By the time someone figures out all isn't well and finds the remains of their associates, they'll see how badly things went. Odds are very good they won't even get near the place because the cops will get there first, but everyone will know something attacked them without so much as breaking a sweat, and it's still out there. That'll be the story. I had no doubt that was true, all of it, so I drove to the police station and escorted Winters in, where we told them the story of how I got there and what happened. They brought us some coffee and contacted the ranger station to let them know everything was alright, but it'd be a while. It wasn't the worst way to spend an evening, as Winters and I got to share a pizza and some other food from a restaurant down the street. Everything Winters said came true and his miraculous return was the big story in town. In the meantime, I went back to work, and the mine was fully explored and documented before it was properly closed off for safety reasons. The thing that was out there that night was never seen again by me or anyone in the park. If anyone else saw it, I didn't hear about it, but that didn't mean it wasn't out there. The desert has always been a place of mystery, especially at night. I don't expect that to change because that's exactly what makes it the desert, and it's something I've always loved about it. Before we go to the next scary story, I just wanted to mention I stumbled upon a little productivity shot that has improved my mornings dramatically. Being a caffeine enthusiast, I used to consume an excessive amount of energy drinks and coffee, anything with caffeine to fuel my day. However, I found solace in this new addition to my routine that I can carry with me anywhere. It has become my go-to source for a quick energy boost, and I take it religiously because of its convenience. Surprisingly, it tastes quite good, and it has substantially reduced my caffeine cravings since I started incorporating Magic Mind into my daily ritual. It's become my steadfast companion, something I can't imagine my mornings without. My favorite aspect of it is the mental clarity and focus it provides. I've noticed a significant decrease in stress and anxiety to calm my ADHD, improve sleep quality, and even better memory retention. What sets Magic Mind apart is its best all-natural ingredients, meticulously sourced from top-notch suppliers. It's sugar-free, nut-free, vegan, keto, and paleo-friendly, making it suitable for various dietary preferences. But the real gem in this shot is the organic cordyceps mushrooms not the ones you'd find in a video game or show like The Last of Us, but a potent adaptogen that reduces inflammation, fortifies the immune system, and bolsters energy levels and physical endurance. How does it work its magic? By amping up the production of ATP in your mitochondria, you know, the powerhouse of the cell. I love sharing magic mind with my friends. We're all coffee addicts, and this has helped us cut back. Join me and countless others in the Just Creepy Squad today. Go to www.magicmind.com forward slash just creepy 
You can also use my discount code JUSTCREEPY20 to get up to 56% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. Again, go to magicmind.com forward slash JUSTCREEPY or use my discount code JUSTCREEPY20 to get up to 56% off your first subscription for the next 10 days with my code JUSTCREEPY20. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I shifted my Harley to a lower gear. A rough mechanical click could be heard right away as the bike eased itself down the highway. I've got time to waste, I thought, so why not waste it well? I wasn't supposed to be riding back home then, but plans had changed, so there I was. The night was rather still, only disturbed by the distant hum of traffic and the roar of my bike. Above, the moon, though how dim it was and covered partly by ominous clusters of clouds blessed my night journey with much-needed illumination. I could feel the cool air coming from ahead. How sweet and refreshing it was, like a soft kiss, relieving and comforting. Exactly what I needed. Leaving the busy city behind, I couldn't help but thinking about the future ahead. I had come there to find a job, to get out of the dull and menial flyover country, in the hope that one day I could make a name for myself. But luck hadn't been on my side. Alas, in my heart, still a country boy, I found myself caged and isolated in the psychotically unending struggle of urban life. I yearned for freedom. As hard as you could imagine, I had to leave my dream behind and come back home. But that also meant I had failed. Being truthful to yourself is never easy. It took me some time to finally admitting that disappointing reality and the future ahead is always uncertain. That decision might turn out to be the right one, or I might wither away in the smothering comfort of home and never to realize the full potential in me. Staying might also turn out to be the right decision, or I might lose myself in the sea of mindless robots. I wasn't sure, and the thought just kept on wandering in my mind. To have a moment or two absent from such distress was a welcoming experience. Night rides are my jam, as the hum of traffic was getting lower and lower, I found myself alone but at peace. The only thing I could hear was the roar of my Harley's engine and the gripping of rubber on the dry and dusty asphalt highway. Slowing down, the night wind, instead of hitting hard, it was gently caressing my face, like a steady massage, soothing and calming down all troublesome worries. I took in a deep breath and then exhaled. Fresh and clean, that was all I felt. After a few kilometers, the enjoyable sensation ceased to exist. Everything was eerily quiet all of a sudden. The rhythmic pumping of the twin pistons and the sound of gripping rubber, in contrast with the silent surroundings, seemed too loud. The atmosphere had turned cold, and I found myself shivering lightly from such changes. And the worst of all, something in me was screaming at me, telling me something was very wrong. Not only did I feel cold, I felt vulnerable. I was being watched. Ahead, just 100 meters or so, hiding in the foliage of the roadside tree line, 
I saw a vague silhouette. It was too dark for me to make out anything, but I had a bad feeling about it. The way it was moving under the cover of vegetation irked me somehow. As a response, I sped up a little bit and got myself ready to go full throttle if need be. Also, I turned my bike to the other lane just to create some distance between me and the thing. As I was getting closer, the mysterious thing abandoned its cover and revealed itself. Slowly, I could make out its fur, a shade of matte brown with a slight hint of orange tint under the dim moonlight. Finally, I saw what it was. A lone coyote. Nothing dangerous at all. Seeing that, I breathed a sigh of relief, but it was not for very long. Suddenly, the coyote stood up on its hind limbs, the way a human would. As it was doing so, I couldn't help but notice how unusually long all four of its limbs were. And something was moving under its skin. Some parts of its body disgustingly bulged up, while others contused and sunk in, as if everything inside was expanding and shuffling around. Its fur, matte coyote brown, started shedding. One patch after another, as the creature was getting taller and taller, the remaining fur stretched out and flaked off like pieces of dandruff. The skin beneath was the color of sickly pale white. Its texture reminded me of those mugshots of drug addicts, of how their hideous faces were always riddled with popping scars and almost seemed hollowed out. Under the moonlight, it gave off a weird and vomit-induced shade of pale blue. It was looking at me. Its eyes were pitch black, absent of everything, yet I could feel its gaze piercing through my soul. And it began to smile, its lips stretched right up to its eyes, revealing a mouth not full of canine but human teeth, too many human teeth. They were unnaturally straight and covered by a thick coat of sickly yellow gunk. The way its whole body was transforming, yet its smile stayed the same, it gave me goosebumps. It held out one of its hands. The fingers, though similar to a human's, they were bent in unnatural shapes and positions. I couldn't help but notice how long and sharp its claws were, how they hooked up at their tips, and how it would feel if those things were to tear into me. Then the creature made the hitchhiker sign, the thumbs up as if it was toying with me, as if it knew that I was afraid. Panicked, I shifted gear and pulled the throttle at max. My Harley sped up, but not as fast as I wished it could. The tall V-twin engine just felt like it was running out of power from being revved too hard. A few seconds after I passed the creature, it took off chasing me. Even the way its whole body moved while it was running after me was utterly bizarre. I had imagined that it would have either run like a coyote or run on its hind legs like a human since it had shown that it could stand up like one. But turned out I was wrong. The way it ran was more similar to a cheetah. The forelimbs, then the hind limbs, then repeat. The thing was fast. It would not take very long until the creature caught up to me. Looking at the side mirror, it seemed to have completed the transformation process by then. I could see its skin-wrapped head very clearly. The skull was human, but its snout was elongated out like a coyote. It had no ears. Its pitch-black eyes sunk into its skull, yet I could still feel its eerie gaze. All of a sudden, the creature gave out an ear-shattering scream. Damn. I said to myself as I slightly jerked forward. My Harley, straining itself as best as it could, started shaking quite hard. I looked down at the speedometer. It said nearly 200 kilometers an hour, yet the creature chasing me did not seem to reach anywhere near its maximum potential. Without warning, it leaped forward. The whole bike gave out a loud crack, as if something heavy had fallen on it. The impact was so severe that it broke all the electronics for the lights, and I had to drive blind. I looked behind, 
and saw that one of its clawing hands was deeply embedded in the back seat of my Harley, dragging itself along the asphalt. And more worrisome than that, my bike was slowing down. It just couldn't compete with the sheer strength of that monstrosity. 185, 180, 175, then 170. I tried to sway my bike side to side to shake the creature off. It didn't work. The thing still held on tight. I thought about kicking it, but I changed my mind since even my Harley could not win against the creature, let alone a measly kick from an awkward angle. I was afraid. I did not dare to think about how it would kill me and probably eat me for dinner. My hope returned when I saw something ahead. An 18-wheeler thundering down the highway with its bright lights piercing straight through the dark, straight at me. I knew what to do, but I only got one chance to do it right. I shook myself up and waited for the moment. Quickly, it came. With my eyes squinted from the harsh headlights of the truck, I leaped out from my Harley to the other lane. Before I fell to the ground and knocked myself out unconscious, I heard a loud bang as my bike crashed into the 18-wheeler. I woke up in a hospital. My whole body was aching like hell, and almost all of it was covered in casts. After a while, a nurse came in and checked on me. Seeing me awake, she comforted me and explained to me about my accident. Apparently, I broke and fractured, most notably both my arms and legs, at least four ribs, and most serious of all, six spinal vertebrae. But I was lucky that I was not paralyzed or needed to be amputated. Slowly regaining my memory of the so-called accident, I asked her about the truck driver that my bike crashed into. She seemed hesitant at first and stayed silent for a little bit until she said this. Don't worry, he's fine. You did his job for him anyway. That was not a normal truck. Now this is supposed to be a secret, but since you have seen the creature already, I figure telling you the general situation is appropriate. Those monsters used to roam this area at night until we organized secret groups of specialized hunters to track them down and exterminate them. The 18-wheeler was one of them, patrolling out at night. When they brought you here, they told me that you were one hell of a brave but stupid idiot. Fast forward to a few years later, I fully recovered, and I am now running a motorbike dealership in the countryside. I love this job. It's where my passion is. I guess abandoning my dazzling city dream for the flyover country was the right decision after all. Yesterday, at around noon, one of the test riders came back screaming in panic about a strange creature he saw while speeding down the nearby highway, about how it first looked like a coyote until it turned into an unholy abomination. It was the summer after my freshman year of high school when my family decided to take a vacation to Yellowstone National Park. We'd rented a rustic cabin in the woods, just outside the park borders. I remember clearly being excited to spend a week surrounded by nature and trees instead of concrete and cars. As an avid reader, I planned to spend most of the trip curled up on the cabin porch, devouring my books. The day we arrived at the cabin, the sun was high overhead, casting dappled shadows across the dirt driveway. My parents and my younger sister Jess piled out of our SUV while I grabbed our bags from the back. The cabin owner, an elderly man named Walter, hobbled over to greet us. After introductions, Walter led us inside the two-bedroom cabin. It was quaint, with wood panel walls, patchwork quilts, and a stone fireplace in the main living area. The musty smell inside reminded me of my grandparents' basement. Walter showed us around, pointing out the small kitchen, bathroom, and bedrooms. Well, I think that covers everything, 
he said, rubbing his wrinkled hands together. You folks need anything, just give me a holler. My house is just a mile down the road. We thanked him as my dad handed over a check for the stay. Walter pocketed it and shuffled toward the front door. But before he left, he turned back to us with a strange look in his pale blue eyes. One more thing, he said in a low voice. I suggest you folks stay inside after the sun sets. These woods ain't quite right at night if you catch my drift. My dad chuckled uncomfortably. We're city folk, Walter. I think we can manage. Walter nodded slowly, his gaze drifting over each of us. Oh, I'm sure you can. Just keep the doors locked and curtains drawn after dark. You'll be wanting to stay inside, trust me. Well, you folks enjoy your holiday. With that ominous warning lingering in the air, Walter exited the cabin, leaving the four of us staring at each other. What a character, my mom said with a nervous laugh. My sister Jess looked uneasy, her brown eyes wide. I'm sure he was just joking around, trying to scare us, my dad offered, though he didn't sound convinced. Come on, let's get unpacked and figure out some activities for the week. We busied ourselves, putting clothes and supplies away in the old oak dressers and cabinets. The odd encounter with Walter soon faded from my mind as I daydreamed about spending the week reading on the porch swing. As the sun began to set, we cooked hot dogs and beans over the crackling fire as I tore through pages of The Divide by Elizabeth Kay. The howls of coyotes echoed in the distance as we laughed and talked over the snaps and pops of the flames. Full and content, I said goodnight and retired to the room I was sharing with Jess. Jess was already there, curled up under the covers of the twin bed closest to the door. I quietly changed into pajamas, then switched off the bedside lamp between our beds. Moonlight filtered in through the curtained window, creating shadows that swayed gently in the night breeze. Somewhere out in the dark forest an owl hooted, its call soon answered by the forlorn cry of a coyote. I rolled over, closing my eyes. I felt myself beginning to drift off, but just as sleep was about to overtake me, a bizarre sound pierced the night, a sort of drawn-out wail or howl that seemed to waver and warble unnaturally. My eyes shot open, now fully awake and alert. The odd howling sounded again, even closer and louder than before. It clearly came from somewhere right outside in the woods surrounding the cabin. I sat up slowly, glancing over at Jess's bed. She appeared to still be sleeping soundly. Then I turned my attention to the window behind me. I noticed the curtains were still partially open. I thought about getting up to close them, but a feeling of dread kept me pinned beneath the covers. The unearthly howling and wailing continued at sporadic intervals, and with each eerie cry, a cold knot of fear grew inside my chest. I didn't dare peek out between the curtains. I was terrified I might see something peering back at me from the dark tree line. At some point during the chilling chorus of sounds, I realized Jess was no longer in her bed. How could I have not noticed her get up? Had I fallen asleep at some point? My heart pounding, I squinted through the moonlight at her empty, disheveled sheets. Slowly, I shifted my gaze to the center of the room. A small gasp escaped my lips. Jess stood there, staring blankly out the window through the opening in the curtains. I stared at her silhouette, my heart drumming loudly in my ears. She was standing unnaturally still, arms hanging limply at her sides. Jess? My voice barely audible over the ongoing wails from outside. She gave no indication of hearing me. I said her name louder. Jess! But she remained frozen in place, her gaze fixed on some point through the partially open curtains. The terrible cries rose and fell again and again, 
sending shivers up my spine. Swallowing down my fear, I slowly peeled back the covers, sliding my legs off the bed. The wooden floor was like ice against my bare feet. I took a tentative step toward my sister. Jess, can you hear me? I asked, my voice quivering. Still no response. As I crept closer, I could see Jess's face illuminated in the silvery moonlight. Her eyes were open, but glazed over and vacant. It was like she was in some kind of trance. I followed her stare out toward the woods, but all I could make out was darkness and swaying branches. The awful wailing erupted again, louder than before. I flinched, the hairs on my arms standing at attention fighting every survival instinct urging me to flee. I closed the remaining distance and reached for my sister's rigid arm. Jess, say something, you're freaking me out. Before I made contact with her arm, Jess's head suddenly snapped toward me. I stumbled back with a gasp. Her vacant eyes were now piercing into me. For a heartbeat, I thought I saw a flicker of recognition in her eyes, but then her head swiveled back around to face the window. My breaths now came in panicked gulps, my heart slamming against my ribcage. I knew I needed to get away from the window, away from whatever lurked outside in the dark forest, whatever it was that had entranced my sister. Hey, come on. Let's get back in bed. I managed to choke out. When Jess still didn't budge, I grasped her cold hand in mine. I gave her a gentle tug, and to my immense relief, she followed me without resistance. As we shuffled away from the window, the unnerving howls outside subsided, replaced by the normal night chorus of insects and owls. The knot in my chest finally loosened once we were back at our beds. I helped Jess get under her covers, glancing anxiously at her face for any spark of awareness, but her features remained blank, her brown eyes dull and unfocused. It was like part of her mind was still standing over by that window. Just try to sleep, I told her as I tucked the blankets around her small frame. She said nothing, merely staring past me at the ceiling. Exhausted and beaten, my mind and body, I knew rest would not find me easily tonight. Moving quietly, I closed the curtain fully, shutting out the moonlight. The room was abruptly cast into inky blackness. I crawled back into bed my icy feet seeking warmth beneath the sheets. Pulling the covers up to my chin, I lay there staring into the void, straining to hear any sound from Jess's side of the room. But besides the pounding of my heart, all was silent. Eventually, I drifted off into a fretful sleep, my slumber plagued by screeching cries and vacant eyes. I jolted awake just as the first muted light of dawn crept across the ceiling. For a moment, I just lay there listening. But no wailing cries pierced the morning stillness, just a few chirping birds from the surrounding forest. I rubbed the sleep from my eyes and sat up slowly, casting a cautious glance toward Jess's bed. Relief coursed through me at the sight of her sleeping form, blankets rising and falling rhythmically with her breath. The empty, trance-like stare from last night was gone. Her face was relaxed and peaceful. I wondered if she even remembered what had happened. As I got dressed and prepared for the day, I mulled over whether to tell my parents about the bizarre events of the previous night. Would they just brush it off like we did with Walter's initial warning? Should I talk to Jess first and find out what she saw or experienced? In the end, I decided to wait and observe my sister's behavior when she woke up. If she seemed confused or scared, then I would tell our parents something frightening had happened. But if Jess acted normal, I thought it best not to rehash the unnerving experience. I sat on the living room sofa, watching the shadows retreat across the yard as the sun rose higher in the sky. 
The whole forest now appeared tranquil and inviting. It was hard to imagine the haunting sounds that echoed between the trees just hours before. I hoped that whatever had occurred last night was just an isolated incident, that the remainder of our vacation would be peaceful and uneventful. I tried to act normal as Jess eventually emerged from the bedroom, her hair a mess from sleep. She gave me a quizzical look as I watched her shuffle to the bathroom. What are you staring at? She mumbled through a yawn. I shook my head, relief flooding through me. Nothing. Just sleep, okay? She shrugged absently before disappearing behind the bathroom door. When she rejoined us in the cozy kitchen for breakfast, I studied her closely for any signs of that vacant stare or unease from the previous night. But she seemed her usual cranky morning self, slumped over a bowl of cereal. So I guessed I wouldn't be mentioning anything about the strange events, unless she did first. After eating, Jess planted herself on the living room sofa to watch cartoons, while my parents discussed possible hikes for the day. I mumbled something about going for a walk and slipped out the front door unnoticed. I brought one of Darcy's horror novels with me, one of her many ghost stories. I couldn't remember which. The morning sun filtered brightly through the trees, warming the ground and raising the bird song a few decibels. I followed a narrow trail away from the cabin, fallen pine needles and twigs crunching under my sneakers. The surrounding forest appeared perfectly normal, no traces of the ominous noises that had pierced our dark hours. I wondered if somehow it had just been a bizarre dream or a figment of my imagination. Then again, the vivid image of Jess's blank stare and rigid form refused to fade from my mind. Lost in thought, I didn't pay much mind to where my feet carried me until the trees began to thin. I emerged from the forest onto a deserted dirt road that stretched onward through the woods in either direction. Glancing back, I realized how far I'd wandered from the cabin. I considered turning around, but curiosity nudged me forward. Around a bend, a weathered wooden fence came into view, with a crooked hand-painted sign that read, No Trespassing Private Property. I paused, peering through the fence slats. There appeared to be a small overgrown pasture on the other side. I decided I wasn't technically trespassing from the road. I continued on, my footsteps echoing on the deserted dirt road that stretched out before me. The dense forest surrounded me, its towering pines and spruces creating a natural canopy overhead. But as I ventured further down the road, an unsettling sight caught my attention, and my heart quickened. Every tree that bordered the pasture to my left and right bore strange markings. It was as though a massive beast had raked its claws vertically down each trunk, tearing away chunks of bark. My curiosity pushed me closer, and I reached out to touch one of the deep gashes. My fingers brushed against the sticky sap left behind, and a shiver of unease trickled down my spine. I couldn't help myself. I hurried farther down the road to inspect the other trees. Each one displayed similar claw marks, with no discernible pattern or purpose. It was as if something had wandered through the forest indiscriminately, shredding every tree within reach. A growing sense of dread consumed me as I backtracked away from the disturbing sight. It felt as though I was being watched, and my skin prickled with an eerie awareness. When I was once again surrounded by the untouched beauty of nature, I left the road and pushed deeper into the dense forest. The sunlight struggled to penetrate the thick cluster of evergreens, casting murky shadows all around me. Every snapping twig underfoot sent my heart racing, but I forged ahead aimlessly, my curiosity driving me forward. 
Suddenly, I stumbled into a small clearing. I froze in place, my eyes widening as makeshift wooden structures came into view. Twisted branches and some unknown cord held them together, forming crude symbols and shapes that adorned the structures. I couldn't decipher any meaning from them. In the center of the clearing lay a small altar-like pile of rocks topped with bundles of feathers, beads, and bones. The entire scene exuded an aura of dark, primal energy that seemed to hum in the air and tingle against my skin. A sense of intrusion and foreboding washed over me, and I felt like an unwelcome guest in this twisted corner of the woods. I backpedaled away from the clearing, urged on by the suffocating sensation of being watched by unseen eyes. Only when the strange structures were far behind me did I stop to catch my breath. I leaned against a sturdy pine tree, a shudder passing through me as I imagined what sort of twisted creature or person could have constructed those eerie, unnatural things. The normal forest sounds of bird calls and rustling leaves seemed muted, replaced by a heavy silence that clung to the air. I couldn't shake the certainty that something uncanny lingered out here, just out of sight. Eventually, I arrived back at the cabin, winded and on edge. I hoped I appeared less unnerved than I actually felt as I walked past my dad, who raised an eyebrow at my disheveled state. Over lunch on the porch, my parents discussed visiting Old Faithful the next day. During a lull in the conversation, I hesitantly described the strange markings I'd found in the woods. My dad's brow furrowed and my mom suggested that it might have been wildlife or kids messing around. My dad, his tone casual but firm, declared, Well, I think it's best if we all stay close to the cabin today. I exchanged a knowing look with Jess from across the table. She knew, just as I did, that the cabin grounds were no longer a safe haven. We were intruders here, and something ancient and watchful lurked just beyond the tree line, waiting for the cloak of night to descend once more. The rest of the afternoon was spent playing board games on the cabin floor, but an undercurrent of dread flowed through our forced conversations and half-hearted laughter. When dusk settled around the cabin like an oppressive shroud, our words tapered off entirely, replaced by strained silence. Once the curtains were drawn, the living room became a haven of sorts. My parents retired to their bedroom, and Jess and I lay side by side in tense stillness, our ears straining in the dark. The comforting sounds of our parents preparing for bed in the next room gradually went quiet. I thought about asking Jess if she wanted to talk about what had happened yesterday, to see if she would open up about her eerie trance by the window, but fear kept me mute, my words frozen in my throat. Eventually, Jess's breath slowed into the steady tempo of sleep. I tossed and turned restlessly, unable to silence my racing mind. Each minute that ticked by on the glowing bedside clock filled me with increasing dread as the witching hour approached. Around 1 a.m., an unearthly howl pierced the stillness of the night and I jolted upright. My heart lurched as the bizarre chorus rose and fell in erratic undulations, filling the night. My eyes instinctively flicked toward the window, but this time the curtains were tightly drawn. I realized Jess must have done that earlier, while I was in the bathroom getting ready for bed. The awful sounds swelled outside, inhuman voices layered upon each other in a cacophony I had never heard before in nature. I imagined hordes of creatures moving stealthily between the trees their features obscured in shadow as they crept closer to our cabin. But what terrified me even more was the realization that they were called by some ancient rite. Nightmare suddenly became reality 
when I saw a tall, humanoid silhouette glide past the bedroom window outside. It briefly blocked the scant moonlight seeping out from behind the heavy drapes. I froze, my skin erupting in goosebumps. Something was right outside. The silhouette lingered by the glass for several heartbeats before slowly continuing past. Its misshapen form and head seemed to turn toward the window as it slid out of view. Hot tears of panic welled in my eyes as the phantom shape faded back into the night. I slowly turned towards Jess. She was sitting bolt upright in bed, her eyes round, filled with terror in the darkness. Anguish racked her body, her hands clamped tightly over her ears. She was so terrified that I could see her drawing blood from where her nails dug into her skin. Jess, it's okay. You're okay, I whispered urgently, helplessness and guilt swirling within me. She remained locked in her mute nightmare, writhing silently against some invisible demon. Swallowing down my own fear, I stumbled over to her bed and wrapped her in my arms. She struggled, her head shaking back and forth, refusing to fully resurface into reality. I choked back tears of my own as I gripped her tightly. Jess, it's me, your brother. I'm right here, I murmured like a mantra, rocking us gently as the hateful cries raged outside. Eventually, I think it worked. She went still, her rigid body no longer fighting. Even so, her small frame continued to tremble. We stayed huddled together as the wailing gradually faded back into silence. Exhaustion overtook me as the adrenaline drained away, and I gave in to sleep. I was startled awake sometime later by a rattling sound. My bleary eyes searched the room before identifying the noise. It was the doorknob to our bedroom, slowly twisting back and forth. Someone or something was trying to get in. I watched the old brass knob rattle ominously, but the door itself stayed firmly closed. After an agonizing minute, the rattling ceased, and heavy footsteps moved past our room, creaking down the hallway toward the living room. The front door groaned open, and a winter chill spiderwebbed across my skin. The footsteps paused on the threshold, then it left, disappearing into the night. The door remained open. Only then did I fully comprehend how close we had come to a horrible fate. Some sort of creature or intruder had made its way inside the cabin during the night because someone hadn't closed the door completely. Luckily, it found itself barred from entry to our bedroom. If that bedroom door had not been locked, I don't know what would have happened. Thankfully, my parents' bedroom door was locked too. Terrible visions of them being slaughtered in their own beds flashed through my mind. There would be no more sleep for me that night as I clung to my sister, grappling with the bleak knowledge that a flimsy door with an even flimsier lock was all that stood between us and this unspeakable horror that roamed from the woods and into our cabin. The next morning, a feeling of gloom hung over the cabin. We all picked at our breakfast in silence our eyes downcast. The cheerful morning light filtering through the windows seemed to mock the despair that had settled upon us during the dark hours of the night. As soon as the sun had risen, my dad went outside to start packing up the car. His face was pale when he came back in, but all he would say was that we were leaving as soon as possible. My mom fluttered around, tidying things with trembling hands before tossing the last few items into our suitcases. I could tell she was on the verge of tears, but was fighting to hold herself together. Jess sat curled up on the sofa, her gaze unfocused. She had not said a word all morning. I wished I could comfort her somehow, convince her she was safe now, but the light of day did not feel like sanctuary anymore. There was no escape from what had happened last night. 
Within an hour, the car was loaded up and idling in the driveway. I took one last look around the cozy cabin that had become our cage, our fragile shelter from the darkness. Part of me wanted to beg my parents to stay, thinking maybe things would be better now. But I knew deep down that we were right to flee this place and never return. The drive home was solemn and silent. Jess slept fitfully in the back seat while I stared listlessly out the window. Now that we were away from danger, my mind churned with questions. What were those creatures that prowled the woods, making those sounds? Why did they target us, and what would have happened if they had gotten into our rooms? Worst of all was the vacant, tortured look in Jess's eyes whenever the creatures came and howled. I shuddered to imagine what nightmarish visions she must have glimpsed through that window. What evil did she see that had brushed her mind and left its claw marks on her sanity? Even away from that place, she was scarred in a way I could not understand. These fears were confirmed a year later, when I walked in on Jess in the midst of a seizure, her eyes rolling back, limbs flailing. I tried to hold her still, yelling desperately for my parents. Suddenly Jess's back arched, and she choked out a guttural scream unlike any human sound. When I looked down at her face, she seemed so far gone. Then her rigid body went limp, and she passed out. Later at the hospital, tests and screenings couldn't determine what had caused her episode. But I knew that some sort of splinter of darkness, which had infested those woods, had burrowed inside Jess. In the years since, I've watched my sister struggle against that latent evil, fighting to keep it buried deep within her psyche. I often consider urging Jess to discuss what horrors she glimpsed in the window that night, hoping that confessing it might offer some deliverance. But seeing the way her eyes clouded with dread at the mere mention of that time, I know better. Some memories are too dangerous to stir from their unquiet sleep, but too strong to ever fully cleanse. The only mercy I can offer my sister now is silence.